in these teachings that expose the many ways that we can investigate the mind and the heart uh, to bring into balance uh, the different characteristics and energies and phenomena that arise in this mind and body of human beings. The Buddha brought forth uh, many lists that show us how to not only develop the particular aspects on that list, like the list I gave you the other day of the five spiritual faculties, but at the same time showed through that list how balance can take place, where we can see where we're lacking or where there is excess of something. And one of those lists, similar to the five uh, faculties, the five spiritual faculties, is the seven factors of enlightenment. And this list also exposes the ways that uh, we can understand how balance can take place in our practice. So this talk is about the seven factors of enlightenment or the seven factors of awakening. One of the last important pieces of advice that the Buddha gave upon uh, his death during uh, just preceding his death were these words. You are the light. You are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but yourself. You are the light. You are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but in yourself. One of the reasons why I appreciate these teachings so much is because even with our own teachers, they continually turn the attention back to our own hearts, not to put all the stock in them to do the practice of liberation for us, but turning it around, turning the light around over and over again to expose what's going on in our own hearts and our own minds to investigate that, to see that, to know what we need to uh, develop, what wholesome qualities we need to develop, what unwholesome qualities we need to relinquish, where the wisdom needs to be developed. Those words of advice given by the Buddha, you are the light, you are the refuge, there is no place to take refuge but yourself, they're often a reminder to me about uh, what our teacher always, our teachers always uh, bring light to is that it's you who have to do the work. Uh, the teachers only point the way, but uh, we who are yogis on the path, we need to walk the path ourselves. It also says to me that I've got what it takes. It's within me. And that uh, puts a lot of understanding of confidence in my own heart. The seeds of awakening are within this very heart, within this very mind, not outside of myself. Some years ago, when I was in Burma practicing, it was the first time I went uh, to Burma, and I thought it would be a good time uh, the first time to go to ordain as a nun. So here I was, you know, 50 years old or um, a little more than 50 years old. And I just thought it was a time to do this great renunciation. And I had a great renewed sense of urgency to do my practice. I felt a relief from having the children leave the house and um, have a sense of, okay, at least right now they're all okay. There's no big financial troubles <laughs> going on where I have to be around and help, or there's nothing going on relationship-wise where, of course, I take my role as a mother um, responsibly enough so that I'm there for them. So I took this time to take off. And I really was willing to go more deeply in practice than I had before. 
So it was one of the times when just, I just was willing to oomph out a lot more energy in my practice. And so I went to Sayadaw Pandita for uh, one of the first interviews. And um, I had just shaved my head and donned the robes of a nun. And he said, why have you come? Why are you here? And the only thing I could think of was, I've come to clean my heart. It was like, you know, whatever I had to do for the next step of my practice. I wanted to feel that my heart was had a, a greater lessening, at least, a greater lessening of greed and hatred and delusion. And so he said to me something that I have never forgotten that's still with me after all these years. It's probably more than five or six years now. He says, you must invest everything you have in the practice. You must invest everything you have in the practice. Not just come here. He was saying to me, you've taken all this time off. You've come here and you've done this great act of renunciation. And so give it your all. And your all is within you. It's, the teachers are always saying, it's not about me. It's not about the teacher. It's about you and your practice, kind of turning the light on us all the time. And so I thought that was really interesting. And still, I think about that, the great confidence that our teachers have had in us and that they must have in us in order to, for us to develop the confidence in ourselves. So um, investing whatever I have in myself into the practice. And so what were those qualities to invest, those qualities of my own heart and mind to invest? Looking at this one list of the seven factors of enlightenment and other lists too, the, the, the paramis, for example, those ten qualities of the heart, another time for that one, but uh, to give you the information on that. But the seven factors of enlightenment is a big one. And we all have those factors within us. They just need to be developed more. They're actually gradually being developed here because of the silence, the seclusion, the commitment to explore what's going on inside of us the steadfast continuity of a balanced effort. That's what we need to keep doing this practice. And <clears throat> we're, we're much more, um, I guess the word is spacious with you, <laughs> about doing your practice. Um, we understand a lot of how hard it is to come into a time like this when we're so busy in our lives and um, we come and we're so tired when we get here and, you know, we give you time to, to rest. And um, if you you know, need to do what you need to do, have a cup of tea or wander around a little bit, as long as you're being generally mindful, okay. But in Burma with our teachers, you can't do anything like that. <laughs> you really just have to be on it all the time. You're just... And they're on you all the time to be on it. I don't have the courage to do that with you, to tell you the truth. <laughs> so <laughs> I, really, I really just have to depend on you to do it. And whatever you're doing, I'm just thinking, well, that must be the right thing for you, you know? Well, whatevers. <laughs> I go back to my Hawaiian ways. Um, but with me, I really like to be under that kind of, you know, that kind of expectation that I can put everything forth, that I am a gentle, courageous warrior, and that my teacher can see me in that light. And he knows, those my teachers have known, that I will do that. And um, I can be quite a warrior in practice, even though I'm soft. Um, generally. So 
I'll repeat these seven factors again, but just for the beginning, the seven factors are arranged in this way. They're mindfulness first, investigation, effort, joyful interest. The last four, three are calm, concentration, and equanimity. So as we do this practice, which sounds so simple, you know, the practice of mindfulness, the one that we uh, give you the direction on in the morning, it sounds so simple, but we know it's hard to do. It's hard to be mindful continually when we give the instructions uh, to be mindful or when I hear them myself from someone else, okay, I can apply mindfulness to this moment of whatever the chosen object is or whatever the predominant object is, but to stay continuous in it is quite a challenge. But when we do that in our sitting, in our walking, in our standing, in our lying down, all the four postures that were presented by the Buddha, and in all the four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feelings, mindfulness of the mind, and um, the last one is presented as mindfulness of all dhammas. That means everything that exists, in short. <laughs> uh, when we're mindful, this results in the maturing of all of these factors. Mindfulness is the lead. And when this is happening, all the others happen uh, spontaneously and naturally. As the Buddha said, if the four foundations of mindfulness are practiced persistently and repeatedly, that's why we stress continuity in practice, not a stiff, rigid continuity, but a relaxed continuity. So when these are practiced persistently and repeatedly, the seven factors of enlightenment will automatically and fully be developed, will automatically and fully be developed. So this is the um, promise of the Buddha, in a way. This has always been a reassuring promise to me. And we have seen, or else we, won't be t we wouldn't be teaching, we have seen that indeed it's true that when we practice mindfulness, all of these others come about. It's uh, connected. All of these are very connected. It's said that mindfulness um, nourishes all of these other uh, qualities, and these qualities are the nutriment of liberation. Again, from the discourses of the Buddha and the numerical discourses, he says, O monks, I declare to you that liberation by supreme knowledge has its nutriment. It is not without a nutriment. And what is that nutriment of liberation by supreme knowledge? The seven factors of enlightenment is the answer. So this is a very important teaching, and this teaching is meant to help you become more aware of what factors are important in your practice to become knowledgeable of your experience so that you're able to recognize these factors when they occur or recognize them when they're recognized when they're not happening so strongly and so that you can understand with your with your own intellect what's going on it's not relying on something or someone else, but relying on your own knowledge. This knowledge gives us a confidence when we understand for ourselves. So of the seven, there are three energizing factors, three stabilizing factors, and one linking factor. The energizing factors are investigation, energy or effort, and joyful interest. Those are the three energizing. 
They're balanced by the three stabilizing or tranquilizing factors, which are calm, concentration, and equanimity. The linking factor is mindfulness, as I just spoke about. It develops all the others, it links all the others, and it balances quite naturally all the others. So the first, about mindfulness. Manindra um, was famous for giving a teaching out of everyday experiences. He would find something that was happening in your everyday experience and he would make a teaching out of that. We had to be careful about asking him a question because he could take the whole day to answer the question. (laughs) One time I was um, walking on the beach with Manindra and the children were with us and they were they were all going off here and there, but they always came back around us, skipping around, and, and um, they always came and, you know, pulled on my um, shirt or touched base with Manindra or kidded around with us or something. Then they'd go out and come back, and he'd say, you know, mindfulness is like a mother. <laughs> Everybody touches base with the mother. All the beautiful qualities of mind, all the factors of enlightenment come back to mindfulness. Mindfulness is like the mother. So he always made it a way for my ears to perk up and say, hmm, yeah, okay, I can connect with that. I'm a mother. And I see in my own practice how it's true when mindfulness is there, like just for example, mindfulness on changing objects, when you're aware of one object after another, after another, after another, it brings in concentration. When you're mindful over and over of a certain experience over and over again, the familiarity with that experience, the actual ability to touch that experience over and over and over again brings some kind of equanimity to the mind and calm because it isn't unknown. It's not scary because it's unknown. It becomes more and more known because of touching the object with mindfulness. So that it becomes interesting uh, and familiar that way. And it becomes interesting through um, being able to come together with it, connecting and sustaining when you do it all the time, connecting and sustaining with certain experiences, you actually become interested in them. And it's like that interest brings up the energy. And then when the energy comes up and something new opens up in the experience, it's like being joyful about it kind of having a lightness of mind with that interest. So a lot of the of these factors are developed very, very naturally. It's why in the circles of um, the lineages that we're in, it's just important to, to, if you just practice mindfulness, there's a great deal of faith in that, great deal of faith. Manindra would say over and over again, your only job is to be mindful. Your only job is to be mindful. One time I went to him, this was in Maui, and we were practicing in, um, on the rainy side of Maui, which is Haiku, and in a place where there was a lot of bamboo and thickets and all of that. And um, I came to him one time and I was ready to roll up the mat and I said, I I can't do this. I'm going home. I can't do this. And he had one of his like admonishing moments with me. And he said, your only job is to be mindful. I'm not asking you to cut the jungle. (laughs) I'm just asking you to be mindful. Okay. I knew I was just complaining anyway. And you know, and in a way, I ask to be admonished because <laughs> I need sometimes that outer like You can do it. So when we're mindful, our only job is to be mindful not just one moment, 
but continuing moments. And that is really the key. It's not just being mindful. It's being mindful with continuity. And of course, maybe we miss sometimes, but if we catch most of the time or more of the time, mindfulness gains momentum, strength, and clarity. It's gentle, balanced, persevering effort. When you kind of describe the quality of mindfulness in terms of energy, it's gentle, balanced, persevering effort. It's not an easy quality to know or experience directly because we're mostly concerned with the object of mindfulness, what we're being mindful of. Mindfulness itself can be discerned also. My, one moment of mindfulness can take just the previous passing moment of mindfulness as an object, but that comes with a lot of practice. Most of the time we're concerned with mindfulness of aversion, mindfulness of bodily sensations, mindfulness of hearing, of smelling, the six sense doors, mindfulness of thinking included in that, or the mind. But here, um, just in talking about mindfulness itself, I want to explore some of the characteristics of mindfulness, some of the functions, the manifestations of it. So just in short, um, one way that mindfulness is described is non-negligence. Non-negligence. Uh, the word sometimes used in Pali is apamada. Pamada means negligence and apamada means non-negligence. And just to um, show you how it's such a big subject, it can, it can take a long time to go through just the subject of mindfulness. In one two-month course that I did with Seado Upandita, I think that's a course where I, I first saw Steve as a monk. He did uh, at least half of his talks on apamada, on non-negligence not being negligent moment to moment. You can understand this in great detail about mindfulness, about apamada. We were taught that way. That's why we're both very detail-oriented about the, about the teachings. So it's non-negligence, careful connection to the present moment. That's one way I would describe non-negligence careful connection to the present moment and to the present surroundings. Here's a, a, a saying from the Dhammapada. The foolish and the ignorant give themselves over to negligence, whereas the wise treasure mindfulness as a precious jewel. When someone has a quality of carefulness, mindfulness about them, that stands out to me and to people I know in, in this circle of the Dhamma much more than their physical uh, attributes or their physical beauty or uh, their physical handsomeness. It stands out much more than uh, where they are in the social structure of life, what they own, how much money they have, their accomplishments, their degrees they have. But when somebody is carefully mindful and then there's this experience of them of not being negligent, it's a shining beauty. That shines out so much more than what they are otherwise, how, what the standards are, the usual standards in our world are for beauty and accomplishment. Um, Deepama was one such person. If any of you have seen a picture of Deepama, she's a very simple woman and uh, she didn't really have a degree. She was a householder. And, but her mind was so shiny. 
Someone asked her once, you know, in this moment, what's in your mind? And she just stopped for a minute and she said, concentration and loving kindness. <laughs> and she, you know, she babysat for her grandson and she cooked and she did her household chores and she was mother to her daughter, Deepa. And yet she was this amazing, amazing woman, a great inspiration to many of us, a person uh, of non-negligence. When she attended to her practice, she really attended to her practice. When she attended to her household duties, she did that with complete and caring attention. I met her daughter a few years ago, and um, we had known of each other for a long time and finally got to meet. And so we were having different discussions whenever we met, and I said, what was the most amazing thing you experienced about your mother directly? And she said, oh, when my mother put her mind to her meditation, she really put her mind to it. She was talking about her determination and her, um, her resoluteness. And she said, when I was a little girl, we were at the Mahasi Monastery. That's where Steve was a monk for five years. It, he wasn't there during that time. But Manindra was Deepama's teacher. And um, Deepa, the daughter of Deepama, Deepama is the Ma of Deepa, uh, Deepa said she decided uh, to go in, to do some concentration practice and she decided to do it for a few days. Now this didn't mean that she was sitting and walking for a few days. That meant that she sat down for three days to do her concentration practice. And so she made a determination to go into certain deep states of concentration for three days and not get up to go to the bathroom or to drink or to eat anything. Now, I'm not expecting anybody here to do that. We're not teaching that kind of um, practice. We're teaching more, you know, satipatthana, which is the vipassana practice. Um, and she said, Deepa said, I saw my mother make that determination, and I was a little girl, and she did it. And I watched her. She didn't get up to go to the bathroom. She didn't go to eat. She just stayed in that state, that jhanic state, for three days. And then she made the determination to come out of that state beforehand. And then she came out of that state. But Deepa said we were told to be very quiet around her. We couldn't bother her. We couldn't. So my aunties took care of me. Um, her relatives took care of her at that time. Well, to me, that was amazing. You know, it's, it's not something that I have an aspiration to do. Um, but Deepama wanted to try all that out. And her, she was absolutely just a shining being. People would talk about being around her. I never got to be around her, but through others, I could just feel her shininess and her beauty. That's non-negligence. It's a very alive, down-to-earth in a way, but very heavenly also, fully, carefully being with uh, one's inner experience and when the time is uh, appropriate, one's outer experience. One time, another example I felt very close up is um, when I was with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, I got a sense of this kind of participatory awareness. So it's not that kind of awareness that I'm talking about with Deepama now, but it's a kind of awareness where you're really in tune with what's going on inside of you, but you're also in tune with what's going on outside of you. And uh, it's it's a sense where you're really alive in life. You're really connecting and with others and with how things are in your life. You're not removed. 
this participatory awareness is the ground between, on the one side, indulgence or identification with what's happening, and on the other side, it's the blind denial of what's going on. This participatory awareness is the middle path, somewhere in between, being fully aware, fully alive. In this time with His Holiness, I was one of 5,000 people. And this was in 1989, when he uh, had just received the Nobel Prize. And it was announced, actually, during that teaching that he was given, giving uh, on Rigpa. And um, during the teaching, he was doing some very sacred chants and giving some very sacred instruction to all of the people there. So he was doing one of his the beautiful Tibetan chanting. And um, of course, you know, I don't remember or know, but I just know that beautiful intonation and the um, pace that he was at. And just out of nowhere, just, just before that, I saw some people get up, probably to go to the bathroom, because nobody would move during that kind of chanting. And a few people got up, among 5,000. Of course, there's bound to be some that need to go to the bathroom or do something. So His Holiness was taking notice. I was somewhere nearby, and His Holiness probably took notice stopped that sacred chanting, you know, I just can remember the tone and how it went. And he said, bathroom? (laughs) (laughs) Just stop right in the middle. And so he said, okay, break, bathroom break. And so everybody who wanted to go got up and went to the bathroom, and he said, what time to come back? And Whoever went came back, and then he just continued. There was not a break in that kind of, uh, that quality of present moment experience here, present moment to the surroundings. That kind of carefulness is what we experience in ourselves and in others with mindfulness. So, Let's see. I was struck by Utejaniya's teachings when he pointed out, of course, something that I always understood and knew experientially, but his pointing out with these particular words, awareness alone is not enough. It's not enough to be aware of the present moment. The present moment gives us some relief from being lost in the past or attached to the past or identified with past experiences. It gives us some relief to be just aware of the present moment. It gives us some relief to be aware of the present moment because we're not lost in fantasizing of the future or conjecturing what the future might be or planning. We all know that to be in the present moment is a great freedom in and of itself. But what mindfulness is helpful, more helpful about, is that it brings us to the present moment in a way in which it reflects the present moment so completely, so deeply, so profoundly and clearly that it can reflect what's going on in that present moment so that the true nature of reality, understanding, cognizing, really grokking the true nature of reality, comes into view. This kind of insightful liberation, this kind of transformative wisdom. And this is what frees the mind. It's not mindfulness itself. What frees the mind is the knowledge, that deep, profound knowledge and wisdom that comes because of mindfulness. Mindfulness is one factor. 
wisdom is what's developed through the seven factors of enlightenment. It's said that mindfulness is like a mirror. This is from Chuang Tzu, the fourth century Taoist. He says, a perfect man or woman uses a mind as a mirror. It clings to nothing, it refuses nothing, it receives but does not keep. This is a way of describing how mindfulness is often talked about as bare attention. Bare attention because when a mirror is put on, a clean, clear mirror is reflecting what's going on in the present moment, it reflects it without anything else. There's not aversion to it. It's not seen through a lens of aversion. It's not seen through a lens of attachment or through delusion at all. It's seen very, very clearly. This is why mindfulness is often likened to a mirror. I can hear Manindra's voice a lot sometimes in instructions where he says, be mindful of the most predominant experience, whether it be the breath or something else, without commenting, without criticizing, without judging, without comparing. Just knowing, just reflecting what's in the present moment. This is the mirror, seeing it just as it is, this bare attention. And that's its function, is to simply reflect what's going on. In reflecting what's going on, everything is known. I love the Japanese haiku. It's talking about this in an indirect way. Gazing at the moon, I knew myself completely, no part left out. This is the reflecting quality of mindfulness. So that's the linking factor, mindfulness. And the first factor of the energizing qualities is investigation. When we talk about investigation, sometimes we hear that word, and in Western um, definition, that could mean something like psychological investigation or scientific investigation or kind of like uh, intellectually investigating it. But that's not what is meant in, this, uh, in these seven factors. Investigation in this sense is investigation of the present moment. So that's really the important thing to remember. And maybe I might add of the changing present moment. Because so it's not to take one thing in the present moment and then you know investigate the meaning of it and everything, but just to uh, investigate the changing nature of the present moment. Not the past. It's not about investigating anything in the past or conjecturing the future. If we're doing that, then this is not the kind of investigation that we're doing in this practice. That's not wrong to do, but in mindfulness practice, it doesn't, it's not helpful. It kind of uh, will take us backwards in a way, or put us in a parking lot, uh, a Dharma parking lot, I call. It's not rehashing what you already know, about the Dharma even. Sometimes there's kind of like, oh, now I can connect the dots. I see this, connects to that, and that becomes like an aha moment. But we don't ruminate on it so much that it takes us away from knowing the present moment, which might be at that time, after that short understanding of aha-ness, we might say, oh, thinking, and then go on to the next experience. So it's not by thinking about what's going on, the whys and wherefores of the moment's experience or about the Dharma in general. It's by fully experiencing the present moment. Um, sometimes we hear the um, example given by Mahasi Sayadaw or within the teachings of uh, the Mahasi lineage to take mindfulness and rub mindfulness 
on the object, knowing it like experientially. For example, I could know this hand. I could look at this hand and say, oh yes, this is a hand and I'm going to investigate it. It's got these certain lines and wrinkles and it's soft in some parts and bony in others and one finger is a little bit crooked and um, there are different sizes and this is called a thumb and this is called fingers and so on and so forth. But that's not the investigation we're talking about and you know that would be parallel to investigating a subject matter. But this kind of investigation is taking mindfulness, say this is mindfulness, bringing it, connecting and sustaining with the experience of that and rubbing the attention there. So in this investigation there's heat and coolness and roughness and smoothness and softness and hardness. Those are the things that are happening, investigating the present moment. So we do that with investigating uh, experience in the body, knowing it that way. We kind of know it, you might say, elementally. We investigate the mind that way. Anger in the mind can be experienced that way. Anger in the mind can be heat. You feel the heat or or the uh, temperature of the mind. You can also feel the constriction of the mind. You can feel the sharpness of it sometimes. So in that way, this is how investigation is taking place. One time I went to Seda Upandita and um, I was thinking a lot about a certain subject matter. I had just gotten into retreat and um, I was carrying with me some situation that I had just come from at home um, with some dear friends. And with these dear friends, as all of us, you know, we have our disagreements and uh, things like that. And so with these particular friends, I was going through feeling blamed and needing to defend myself and not feeling like I was seen correctly and misunderstood and angry and upset and thinking about it and round and round and round with a letter I could write and etc etc and so I went to Upandita and I was saying oh this is what's happening there is a certain subject that keeps bothering me and you weren't allowed to talk about the subject you're just allowed to say it's keep this thinking keeps happening around the subject matter this is how it feels in the mind experience in the mind. This is how it's experienced in the body. And Sero Pandita just stopped me and he said, withdraw your attention from the thinking. Like, you know, it's just like, (laughs) withdraw your attention from the thinking. And it was just like I was lost in it. You know, I was kind of immersed in the thinking. He said, withdraw the attention from the thinking and put your attention on what is most predominant of the um, states of mind that are being experienced. Ah, okay, so what was that? Anger, in that, in that particular moment, felt anger coming up. And he said, now let your attention connect and sustain with that anger. Not wrapped around it so tightly, but just letting the attention connect and sustain, which is another way of saying rubbing the attention on it. And in that way, I felt that I didn't have to be locked up in that whirlwind of the thinking. I could just say, thinking, and know that it was thinking, and see the process, the energy of thinking pass by, and just be with the energy of whatever that aversion was in that moment. Of course, there were other things happening, too, not just aversion attachment to how I wanted it to be, for example. So what was investigated, not just the uh, elemental experience of it, but as the mind got more and more settled, just seeing when it started to arise, when the thinking would arise, and catching it before it had a chance to kind of run away with all its myriad thoughts. uh, And 
sometimes I wouldn't catch it right away, but noticing when thinking was happening and the moment that it was noticed could see it pass away, just disappear, just like that. So to see the arising, to see the changing, the middle part of it sometimes, to see the passing away with it, is to see its deeper nature. So what is investigated is not just this kind of uh, qualities of hardness, softness, fire, temperature of it, etc., but also the deeper, more universal qualities of its impermanence, of seeing its corelessness, its uh, selfless quality, of seeing uh, the quality of unsatisfactoriness in, in all of it. The, generally, the unsatisfactoriness of thinking about it never got anywhere, just like a dog chasing its tail. So when investigation is weak, a lot of doubt can come up and it can paralyze you. You lose confidence in yourselves because of too much thinking, basically. That's when the right investigation is weak. Um, and, you, and you're just thinking about things. So the second energizing quality is effort or energy. It's not the energy or effort to change what's going on. It's not the energy to get rid of what's going on. It's not the energy to achieve your agenda or to gain something. It's the energy to be with the present moment. Now this is a very, very light thing. It's not a heavy duty, a big, I've got to be with the present moment. It's a very, very simple light, but it needs to be that continuous kind of energy. One way that one of our colleagues describes it, Joseph Goldstein, is short moments many times. That kind of energy. Short moments many times. It's persistence gentle, persevering energy. Not this kind of energy that needs to grab an object, but just to touch it with mindfulness. Just enough connecting and sustaining to know that experience as it arises and passes away. So if you just for a moment experience, um, for a moment you don't even have to turn your head. Just feel your right hand wherever it is. It's that kind of energy. Just that moment to feel your right hand. Is there coolness, warmth, softness, hardness, heaviness, lightness? Just knowing the changing nature of the sensations in your right hand. Just that, that kind of energy, but consistently. If there's too much energy, it goes towards restlessness or tightness. You can just get really tight trying to be energetic all the time. And then that leads to sloth and torpor and eventually leads to doubt. You know, why am I here? That kind of doubt. If there's too little energy, of course, it will lead to torpor or a sluggishness of the mind, which also leads to doubt, no confidence in oneself, because not seeing clearly, one knows that we're not doing, we're really not doing the practice in the right way. Ramana Maharshi says, no one succeeds without effort, mind at peace, is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. There is the seed of peace within us, but to get there, we really need these qualities to be developed, to allow that seed to blossom. So the third energizing quality is joyful interest, or a zest for practice. 
And maybe some of you, perhaps all of you, or maybe just a few of you have had moments of like really joyfully interest in, interested in your practice in a moment of like there's pain in, in the body or in the knee and you could really be interested in that instead of resisting it or avoiding it. And of course, if you feel like you're going to ruin your knee for the rest of your life, change, you know, change your posture. Uh, somebody said the other day when I was talking about my knee, oh, maybe I'm um, damaging my knee. But, you know, I know how far to go. <laughs> I'll change position if I need to. You can get really interested in something painful. Painful in the body, painful in the mind. And that pain changes. We see that what that pain consists of are this are these pixels of many other things. And we can get very, very interested in that. Um, again, it comes, it emerges out of persistence, this general, this gentle, persevering effort. It's said that joyful interest, or sometimes it's called delight, comes from that kind of energy of being persistent. One of the ways it's described in the text is like we're walking in the desert and we feel parched, parched with thirst, but we keep on going, just one foot after another. And we see an oasis in the distance. And we, all of a sudden, our energy, that kind of interest in getting there happens. And we just can keep going because it's sort of like we begin to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Ah, this is what it's all about. This kind of mindfulness, this kind of being interested in the moment-to-moment experience. Um, Sometimes we feel this joyful interest. Sometimes people talk about it as delight. Sometimes it gets really, really, um, oh, serious, and some people call it rapture. It's characterized by a feeling of openness in the mind, feeling of easefulness in the body, in the mind. There's a willingness to receive all experience when this happens, because there's an interest in whatever experience arises. The mind is infused with a more balanced energy. It isn't a restless energy, but it's an energy that's kind of like spurts out bit by bit and comes uh, with every moment of mindfulness. It, and it lands on that object with the mindfulness. We feel that our practice is very workable now. And there's, uh, our level of confidence rises when this happens. Sometimes people feel a sense of floating or vibration in the body get really interested in that. Sometimes there's rocking in the body. You might open your eyes, but you're not actually moving. You just feel some uh, inward kind of movement. It's very, very pleasant. Sometimes there's goosebumps and chills. Um, And there's more to it than that, but these are some of the characteristics of this joyful interest. It's important not to get attached here because people can get really attached to this place. When we go through this kind of thing, which happens to everybody uh, who continues in the practice, uh, the teachers will usually say, is it pleasant? And then, of course, you you notice some places of pleasantness. Are you noting pleasantness, pleasant, pleasant? And uh, if you're, you say you're not noting, they ask, are you attached to this pleasantness? Because if you don't notice and note pleasant, then you can become attached there. So those are the <clears throat> tranquilizing, the um, energizing, sorry. Next is the tranquilizing. And I I really only have two, and I'm going to go a little over time because I talked about equanimity already. 
So the tranquilizing factors, the first is calm and tranquility. Now remember, joyful interest is like walking in a desert parched with thirst and you see water in the distance. Calm, the subjective experience of calm, is getting to that place and drinking the water. And you know how when you're thirsty and you drink water and you feel, you just feel relief and relaxed. Is that, it's that kind of relaxed relief feeling in the moment. Um, it develops as rapture smooths out. Of course, restlessness is absent then when calm is there. There's a feeling of stillness in the body and stillness in the mind. So this is calm. Maybe you only experience it for a few moments. It's still calm. You don't have to experience for a whole sitting. So notice when it's happening. Um, The agitation in the mind is not there. You may notice during calm that uh, something that agitated you before doesn't agitate you now. It may ripple the mind a little bit, but not so much so that you can't go back, the mind can't go back to experiencing calm. The mind feels more settled than before. It's, it's almost like you feel like there has been a drop in your practice from the energizing factors to these tranquilizing People often say, oh, I felt like the mind just clunked down or just dropped down. And it could be just for a little while, but it could be for a a longer time. There's a brightness in the mind. Uh, Objects, experiences can be experienced more clearly. You feel calm even when you're moving. It doesn't disturb that kind of calmness. There's kind of an okayness to what's happening. And one of the things that we see in calmness is that the urge to try to change something or try to make something happen is futile. You you just, you're not trying to say, oh, I'm going to write a note to say whatever we need to say to the teacher. You just take the experience as it is. There's more surrender. And it's at this time when everything becomes the Dhamma, everything becomes a teaching. As Kabir says, when the eyes and the ears are open, even leaves on the trees teach, like pages from the scriptures. It's this time when uh, we as yogis hear ourselves say or hear others say, oh, you know, I saw this leaf drop from the tree and I understood something I never understood before. We're just watching raccoons. Something happens when there's calm because the pond of our inner life is so still now that the ability to see more clearly the reflection in the pond is very clear. The depth in the pond is very clear. So the second stabilizing factor after calm is concentration. This is an undistracted attention. It comes with calm. It's developed out of uh, calm. It's when the energy of the mind is gathered together. It's unified. It's collected. Sometimes it's called a collected mind. The energy energy of the mind is, is collected. And it's able to stream towards one thing, even if that thing is momentary. In Vipassana, it's a momentary experience. So momentarily, it streams towards this experience. And then another moment of concentration streams towards the next moment. There's this total collection of the mind. It's not dispersed. It's still relaxed in calmness. There's energy, so it can stream towards the object. There's interest in the object to investigate, connect, and sustain the attention. But mainly, it's not this, um, it's not this kind of... Uh, people um, get calm confused with concentration. Concentration is the unification of the mind that streams 
and connects towards whatever object it is connecting with at that time, whether it be a single unchanging object or in Vipassana, it's always on changing objects. One feels more steady. The mind feels more unified. There's a, there's a quite, quite a great feeling of stabilization when, mind, when uh, concentration is there. What happens even on changing objects is that because the mind is streaming towards these objects over and over again, it creates a force field where the hindrances are kept at bay. So the hindrances don't come in because this force field of the streaming concentration on changing objects is so strong, the hindrances cannot come in. And that's when we feel a great deal of protection. Sometimes the hindrances come in when, there's, um, when concentration is not as strong, but we only need just enough concentration because the next quality, the last one that I spoke about, uh, I spoke about this the other night, equanimity. Because equanimity is there, even when something comes in to the field of awareness uh, within these changing objects, equanimity uh, has this quality of non-reactivity. And even when aversion comes into the field, or affects that field in some way, the equanimity, because the equanimity is present, there's no reaction to it. So the mind remains calm. There's not any ripples happening because there's no reactivity. Before the mind falls into an extreme of more aversion or more attachment or a new moment of attachment or aversion, the mind gets stilled because there's no reactivity, because of equanimity. So this equanimity I described um, in more fullness the other night. But it's like, and and you can feel it, I'm just going to give one more metaphor of equanimity. Equanimity in the mind is like this, as a metaphor. It's like when raindrops fall on a slightly sloping lotus leaf, it rolls off and it doesn't remain there. So it feels like that when, when there's equanimity in the mind, something comes, some experience comes like some aversion, something to be reactive about happens and then either aversion or attachment comes in reactivity to that and it comes and it just rolls off, no problem. As it says in the scriptures, when there is nothing in the world that can trigger agitation, then one is free from the pain of longing, from the pain of dukkha. So these seven factors, with the balance of the linking factor of mindfulness, then on one side the three energizing, and the other side the the three tranquilizing, when these are all strong, it nourishes the main factor, which is mindfulness. It gives nutriment not only to um, mindfulness, but to all the other factors. When one becomes strong, it nourishes all the other factors. And when all the factors are very, very strong, especially uh, mindfulness and equanimity, it's said that it, there is the ability for the mind to leap into the unconditioned, to actually experience nibbana, nirvana, to experience uh, a mind where there can uh, experience, not a mind, but an experience where the defilements can begin to be uprooted from the mind. So these, this is the importance of these seven factors and the balance of them. Once we recognize them, um, they're strengthened. They're strengthened because there's more faith and confidence in our own practice. And we can continue even through the hard bits of our uh, spiritual life.
So I'd like to end with um, the quote I started with from the Buddha. And it's really a, an understanding that puts it all back in our own laps, in our own sense of responsibility for ourselves on the spiritual path. As one of my friends says, it's a do-it-yourself job. You know, we, we really, it's no one else can do it for us. So the Buddha says, you are the light, you are the refuge. There is no place to take refuge but yourself. So let's sit for a moment. Let those words dissolve. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.